Good morning. I'm Brad DeLong, and this, this is my morning coffee. I was rereading Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter on, quote, liquidationism, unquote, on why it is that depressions and the periods of high unemployment and great unused capacity that they produce are things to be suffered rather than things to be cured. We see him writing this stridently in 1927 and in 1934, saying, quote, most of what would be effective in remedying a depression would be equally effective in preventing adjustment. This is especially true of inflation, which would, if pushed too far, undoubtedly turn depression into the sham prosperity that would, in the end, lead to a collapse worse than the one it was called into remedy. And, quote, the chief difficulty lies in the fact that depressions are not simply evils which we might attempt to suppress, but perhaps undesirable forms of something that has to be done, namely adjustment to economic change. And in all cases, recovery came of itself. There is certainly this much of truth in the talk about the recuperative powers of our industrial system. But this is not all. Our analysis leads us to believe that recovery is sound only if it does come of itself. For any revival which is merely due to artificial stimulus leaves part of the work of depressions undone and adds to an undigested remnant of maladjustment, new maladjustment of its own which has to be liquidated in turn, thus threatening business with another crisis ahead. Particularly, our story provides a presumption against remedial measures which work through money and credit. For the trouble is fundamentally not with money and credit, and policies of this class are particularly apt to keep up and add to maladjustment and to produce additional trouble in the future. And reading this, I have three reactions. First, how much smarter Schumpeter is than our modern liquidationists and austerians, than the Robert Lucases and John Taylors and Marvin Goodfriends um, we see wandering the world today. Schumpeter says a great many true things in and amongst the chaff. The chaff, however, is created by his fundamentally mistaken belief that you need structural adjustment, that structural adjustment must be triggered by a downturn and a wave of bankruptcies that releases resources into unemployment, and that is the only way to get structural adjustment to economic change. But still, how much more fun and useful it would be right now to be debating a Schumpeter than the ideologues calling for, say, more austerity and more unemployment in Greece, or warning us that Bernanke's policies were in danger of currency debasement and high inflation, or claiming that fiscal expansion simply could not work. Second, in historical perspective, how very strange it is for Schumpeter to be laying out his depressions cause structural change and growth theory of business cycles at the exact same moment cause structural change in growth theory of enterprise. It is, of course, the second that is correct. Growth comes from entrepreneurs pulling resources into the sectors, enterprises, products, and production methods of the future. It does not come from depressions pushing resources into unemployment. Indeed, as Keynes noted in 1936, times of depression and fear of a future depression those are very powerful breaks halting Schumpeterian entrepreneurship and retarding desirable structural change. Quote, 
If effective demand is deficient, the individual enterpriser is operating with the odds loaded against him. The game of hazard which he plays is furnished with many zeros. Hitherto, the increment of the world's wealth has fallen short of the aggregate of positive individual savings, and the difference has been made up by the losses of those whose courage and initiative have not been supplemented by exceptional skill or unusual good fortune. But if effective demand is adequate, average skill and average good fortune will be enough." Third, how Schumpeter genuinely seems to have no clue at all that the business cycle is a feature of a monetary economy. How very badly indeed he needed to learn, and how he never did learn, what Nick Rowe and company teach today about the effects of monetary stringency on economic coordination, how much the kind of currency and banking schools understood early in the 19th century, starting with, say, Jean-Baptiste Say um, in 1829, about how an excess, a, an excess demand for money is a general glut, an excess supply of goods and services. It is a fact that often, usually, almost always, um, the trouble is fundamentally with money and credit. And policies to repair the fundamental disequilibrium in money and credit leave the economy in not a state of maladjustment that has to be adjusted to in the future, but in a state of health. Thank you for listening.